Up to 131,000 gallons of oil spilled into ocean waters in Orange County earlier this month, and lawmakers are now calling for greater oversight and, potentially, an end to offshore drilling in California. Before that happens, though, damages and liability will be assessed through the court system. Who might be held responsible for this oil spill? And what can we learn from past spills to help prevent future ones? From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Robinson Dorn, a clinical professor of law, co-associate dean of experiential education, and director of the Environmental Law Clinic at UCI. Professor Robinson Dorn, thank you for joining me today on the UCI Podcast. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Uh, very good to be with you. Uh, though, though I can't say that the reason that brings us together is is very good at all. It's really not. Uh, this spill has been a huge tragedy off the coast of Huntington Beach. So, what do we know so far about what happened to cause this oil spill? Yeah, I'm. I'm really glad you phrased it that way. Uh, so far, the investigation into that question, uh, what caused the spill is very much uh, still underway, and the information that we're receiving continues to change. But as of Friday, the Coast Guard's reporting that the leading theory is an anchor strike. The, uh, the Coast Guard uh, spokesman is going so far as to say that he was highly confident that it was an anchor strike from a large ship hmm. uh, that was the initial event that caused the spill. Apparently, the, the pipeline itself is in fairly shallow water, and it was struck by an anchor, or that's at least the theory, uh, so hard that the, the outer cement casing was taken off of the pipeline. And so when the dive teams went down, uh, they've seen a 13-inch gash, you know, a lateral gash in the pipeline. And that's the pipeline that connects, you know, the platform in federal waters all the way to Long Beach. And again, this is, you know, early days, but it, but it appears that a 4,000 foot or so section of the pipeline had been dragged wow. into a near semicircle, or you know what they're saying is like a bow shape, moving the pipeline in that area as much as 150 feet from its original position. So that's the theory, but it's but it's unclear whether it was the movement that caused the the rupture or the gash, um, whether it was another strike that potentially did that, or whether it just set things in motion so that uh, some other condition or event led to the, the spill. And, you know, there, there are pretty significant questions that need to be answered about, like, who knew uh, what? Uh, when did they know it? Uh, who, who should have known? Uh, and when, you know, what did they do once they learned uh, more about the spill? Did that failure to report have any exacerbation of the spill itself? But when we're talking about a large anchor, this is not, you know, an anchor from your recreational sailboat. When we're discussing a large anchor, this might have been an anchor from a ship, a cargo ship that would go to the port of Long Beach, for instance. Yeah, that, that's right. And, and that seems to be, as I say, the leading theory for anyone who's been uh, out in Huntington Beach, Newport Beach, all the way down into Long Beach, uh, anytime 
in the last many months, you can see all of those uh, large container ships lined up Mm -hmm. and uh, the anchors on those ships are, are enormous. Well, so we don't know yet whose fault this is or who we can blame, even though that's probably the question that we're all hoping we could answer. And as you noted, it's going to take an investigation to uncover this information and, and it will come out at some point. And, you know, maybe even lawsuits will begin to assign responsibility for this spill. From your experience and what we know, what are the possibilities for who might be held responsible for this? Who are sort of the relevant parties that, that could be held responsible? You hit the nail on the head, which is uh, we don't know yet enough. Mm-hmm. But if it was, say, a ship's anchor, then we'd need to know well, what were the, the circumstances that led to the ship being anchored over that pipeline. As I understand it, those pipelines are both marked on the maps and the ships are directed into various, if you want to call them, you know, parking spots. So did it anchor in the right place? If not, uh, why not? If there was a second strike, what were the circumstances there? So you have questions that, that have to do with the ship itself and how it wound up over that pipeline. If maintenance or condition of the pipeline becomes an issue, whether or not the, the pipeline was buried, whether it was on the surface, what did the, the pipeline operator know? Uh, when did they know that the pipeline was leaking? Well, then those could raise questions uh, about the liability of, of the pipeline operator was there sufficient monitoring did the monitors work but these these are all questions that are very much unanswered when we get those answers as you say then liability and responsibility will be assigned well maybe it'd be interesting for us to look a little bit more at some major oil spills in the past to compare them to this current spill and and see you know how liability was assigned in those cases so i guess first of all the most memorable spills probably for a lot of us are the big ones, Exxon Valdez in 1989, Deepwater Horizon in 2010, Santa Barbara going back to 1969, and even the American Trader spill, which was just in 1990 off of the coast of Huntington Beach. So how do those spills compare to this current one? Well, that's where, uh, Aaron, we might have a little bit of good news or at least some better news. At this point, the Coast Guard has revised its estimates of the amount of oil spilled to be between 24,000 gallons and 131,000 gallons. Not to minimize that, but for example, you mentioned the, the 1969 Santa Barbara blowout, right? And that was about 3 million gallons released. Oh, wow. The Exxon Valdez, when the oil tanker ran aground on Bly Reef in Prince William Sound, that was 11 million gallons released into a, a very different ecosystem, of course, a very difficult ecosystem to get any cleanup. And then the 2010 Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, there we're talking about more than 100 million gallons. Oh, my gosh. Before it was contained. I mean, that was something on the order of 86 or 87 days to get that under control. So... You know, while it's not just the volume or amount of oil that's spilled and, and it matters about uh, the timing and the location of the spill, of course, all indications are that this is a, a significantly less damaging event, at least so far. Uh-huh. You know, we'll, we'll have to see. Uh, you don't know all of the harms, 
and and as we talked about earlier, there's still a lot to be learned, but it does seem that this spill is is less harmful. You know, maybe maybe the spill that that's closest analogy would be the one in 2015 up at Refugio Beach, you know, just northwest, ironically, of Santa Barbara. Because there you had a corroded pipeline mm. at about well, a little over 400,000 gallons that made its way from that underground pipeline inland into the coastal area. Still pretty significant harm. So again, not to minimize uh, the impacts that, that we're seeing here and, and the harm to businesses and, and to people's property and so forth. But maybe we can take a, a little bit uh, from this on, on the good side. Yeah, that is a a little a small piece of good news that at least it was not a huge blowout. So in those cases, who was held liable and did the the liability there set any precedents for future oil spills and, and leaks into ocean waters? So the Santa Barbara oil spill or the blowout, I suppose liability might not be quite the right term, but mm-hmm. but responsibility for sure, um, Union Oil and, and other companies ultimately agreed to pay uh, some pretty significant settlements. I think they were about the largest of their kind uh, to that date. You know, nearly $10 million to uh, wow. private third parties, hotels, recreational facilities, uh, over a million dollars to, to uh, harm fishing interests. So that, you know, that, that was a very uh, significant settlement. And the state and county also received close to $10 million dollars. The Exxon Valdez, that's Exxon. Exxon was found liable. They paid $2 billion wow. in cleanup costs, a billion in natural resource damages, roughly. They had third-party claims, punitive damages that were litigated for, for nearly a dozen years that ultimately you know, the Supreme Court reduced to $500 million mm-hmm. uh, plus another $500 million, uh, in interest. Liability certainly has been assigned and attached, and we've seen big changes come from it. Coming out of the Exxon uh, Valdez, we had the the passage of the Oil Pollution Act. Mm-hmm. You know, from the BP spill, the numbers are just extraordinarily larger. But recall that you know, eleven people died in in that, and more were injured, and the environmental degradation was on a scale that we just haven't seen uh, in this country. And so there. You know, you had th- literally thousands of cases, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of complainants. BP pled guilty to uh, criminal charges, paid uh, extraordinary sums in, in penalties, something on the order $69 billion when you add wow. up the various settlements. Uh, there were also other defendants who, who also, uh, I believe, wound up paying, you know, Transocean and Halliburton. But the the numbers are, are quite extraordinary, and even the even the smaller spill up at Refugio Beach, again, you know, civil fines were paid and and criminal charges for the operator Plains All American Pipeline. Well, and then with this latest spill, the one just earlier this month in Huntington, there have been at least two lawsuits filed seeking damages for the harm from the spill. So, can you tell us what are those lawsuits and who's filing them? So I haven't had a, a lot of time to review the lawsuits themselves, but from what I can see from the reporting, and I, and I did have a chance to look at one of the complaints, it looks like these are early class actions 
So actions filed, uh, one in federal court, in which the assertions are being made on behalf of business owners and fishermen and those who have um, lost income and expect to be losing income. There are assertions related to potential health impacts and the like. But uh, I would expect that this is just the beginning of uh, many, many more lawsuits to come, you know, the nature of, of which will depend on the facts as we, as we learn them. Well, you talked a bit about the, the huge consequences that oil companies suffered from these major spills in decades past. How did the law evolve after those spills and what relevance does that hold for today's spill? The spills that you pointed to are iconic in in that manner. Mm-hmm. Um, the Santa Barbara spill in, in 1969, both by virtue of the fact that uh, where it was located, that it was on TV, uh, it really captured the nation's attention. You're seeing birds and mammals covered in oil each night. And it's also at the same time that you have the nascent environmental movement going. So it, it really was a spark that helped to push forward that environmental agenda that ultimately uh, we see coming together in the very early 70s and whether that's the establishment of of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, the passage of the National Environmental Policy Act, the so-called Magna Carta of Environmental Laws. And at the state level too, you know, you have the, the moratorium essentially on any new offshore drilling in state waters since 1969. Hmm. You have the push for the California Environmental Quality Act. And then just a couple of years later, the, the uh, initiative that led to the, the Coastal Commission. You know, These are the sorts of sparks and you don't know quite how it will uh, play out. In the late 60s, you also had Senator Gaylord Nelson and his staffer, Dennis Hayes, who were moved by what was taking place in Santa Barbara and, and of course, across the country. And that led to uh, ultimately the first Earth Day. Hmm. You know, if, if we look beyond uh, 1969 and, and all the way up to the Exxon Valdez, I think you saw an enormous change in law. Prior to the Exxon Valdez uh, oil spill, there was no one coordinated law that you could look at at the federal level, a comprehensive law to address oil pollution. Uh-huh. And after the spill, Congress passed the Oil Pollution Act of 1990. And what they did was consolidate the existing laws under, under a single program. They expanded the liability provisions of the Clean Water Act, had new provisions related to oil spill prevention and response and what we see, you know, some evidence of certainly out here in Orange County, the development of a unified command structure headed by the Coast Guard so that that response could be quick and hopefully effective. So as the Coast Guard has been responding to this oil spill, who have they needed to coordinate with and have they been doing so? Uh, the Coast Guard leads the response under the Oil Pollution Act. But they do need to be coordinating with the state and, in particular, the natural resource agencies at the federal and state level, the state governor. And hopefully, uh, they are also coordinating with and consulting with 
uh, Native American tribes and, and in California, the, the California tribes. I haven't seen any reports of that. And I'm not saying it isn't happening, uh, but I, I very much hope that it is. Well, you mentioned, I mean, these are tons of new laws and reforms that emerged after these spills. And one that you mentioned was this ban on new oil drilling in state waters after the Santa Barbara spill. But we still have these giant oil platforms in coastal waters, um, plus the ones that are in federal waters. So how come we're still drilling off the coast of California? Having moved here just a little over a decade ago, it was one of the more shocking things I remember seeing flying into uh, Southern California, because I had, of course, thought of of Santa Barbara as marking this moment that that was the end of offshore drilling in, in Southern California. And to see those platforms out there and realize that they're still operating. The short answer is that the lessees have the right to continue to operate their platforms and their extraction on the leases that they have held for now decades. So, so we're not talking about new drilling permits necessarily, but what we're talking about is the continuation of the existing permits okay. and uh, the right to continue to do that. And while there certainly calls for decommissioning, you know, those are still operating, at least for some of them, at a profit. And so what you would be talking about is potential takings claims. A takings claim where if the government compels these companies to shut down, then the companies can claim that the government has taken their property. That's right. And their future profits. Wow. And so that would be something that could turn out very expensive for the government to do. It, it could. Of course, you know, expensive is relative. <laughs> Look at yeah. some of these spills and uh, there's a lot of expense associated with that. We still have these oil platforms drilling. We still have the pipelines and it could be quite pricey to get them removed. But as you just noted, there's a cost to having them. So what do you think needs to happen to prevent more disasters like this spill from occurring? I, I'm a lawyer and uh, you know some of, some of the answer to, to this is, is well beyond my own uh, expertise. That's for sure. But one thing uh, you can certainly say with some certainty is that the extraction and transportation of oil from offshore cannot be made 100% safe. Hmm. And so whether we're talking about increased regulation requirements, uh, ensuring that maintenance is done, that, that all of the efforts at prevention are uh, being made at the maximum level, you're still likely to have spills. Hmm, mm -hmm. You know, mistakes happen, human errors take place, uh, and the costs of these spills are very high. So ultimately, I think what you're talking about is, is a question of values, not really a question of law. What is it that the citizens of California, the citizens of the United States value here, and how do they value it? Uh, it's a very small percentage of U.S. oil production that's coming from these platforms off the California coast. And there's a tremendous value to keeping our ecosystems healthy and intact, to keeping people healthy, and to ensuring that the coasts are the jewels that they have been for so long 
and that are really the reason that people live here. Professor Robinson Dorn, thank you so much for joining me today on the UCI podcast. Oh, it's my, my pleasure, Aaron. The UCI podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI podcast wherever you listen.